Would you open your Bible to Mark chapter 5 as we continue our study in the Gospel of Mark? Uh, we come to a passage that uh, many of us know the story, the backstory of uh, the, the herd of swine and the demon-possessed man, but we want to look at it, of course, in the context in which it is written, and then how we understand it and apply it to our lives, understanding what's going on here beyond just the story itself. Now, there is a certain sense which the culture cycles from time to time. Every decade or so, uh, certain trends come back around in the religious realm. Right now, I've not watched them, but I've seen the uh, advertisements for a series on The Exorcist. Joyful thing to watch. Uh, I put it sort of in the category of, of reality TV with sort of the Bigfoot and the paranormal category. Uh, some, some of you may love those things. God bless you if you do. Um, but reality shows are anything but reality. Keep that in mind. And so the, the idea of studying exorcisms and ghosts and so forth, um, I don't want to demean the reality of the personal work of Satan, but I do want to ridicule as much as possible the reality notion of these things has turned into a form of some bizarre entertainment. The text is going to teach us a number of things, but what I want you to see at the highest level is who is this Jesus and what authority does he have and how he uses it in the storyline. Now, in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4, verse 35, Christ had told his disciples they were heading over to the other side of the sea. You're looking at an image of the Sea of Galilee. We've moved the image from the Judean wilderness kind of look and feel to the Sea of Galilee. Uh, most of Christ's ministry occurs on the northwestern side of the really of a lake. The eastern side is known as the Decapolis, and that's that's where our narrative moves today. So this story picks up from chapter four, verse thirty-five, when Jesus said, "Let us go to the other side." And now we read in chapter five, verse one, they came to the other side of the sea. Into the country of the Gerasenes, when he got out of the boat immediately, a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him, and he had his dwelling among the tombs. And no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain, because he'd often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken into pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him constantly night and day he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with stones uh, we're going to see an interesting number of features in this narrative in chapter 5 verse 1 the they is the only reference you're going to see about the disciples there's no discussion no record no interaction with the disciples and jesus as to what's transpiring just they're mentioned that they're along for the ride. And that's an important detail in Mark's record. They came to the other side. So they are present. We just don't have any interaction with them and with Christ. Uh, the country of the Gerasenes or Gadarenes, Gadara. Uh, if we were to look at a current map today, the Lake of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, on this eastern side, there's about a six, maybe if you push it, eight-mile stretch that could be called the Gerasenes, the Gadarenes, Gadara, and the Decapolis, which you'll read in Mark chapter 5, verse 20. You'll also read the same story in the synoptics of, of Mark, uh, Matthew, and Luke as well. Uh, but we have this section, and of course the Sea of Galilee would have probably been, let's just say, for around numbers 100 feet, maybe 300 feet higher than it is today. And, and so we have some cliffs that do come over, and you've got an area, maybe six to eight miles, where it happened. Again, 
we don't worship the site in Israel. We study the geography and the area to get a sense of what it was like in the time of Christ some 2,000 years ago. Verse 2, of course, the story is moving. Mark's favorite word, immediately a man from the tombs met him. And then we have a parenthesis from chapter, chapter uh, 5, verse 1 to verse 3, where Mark gives us some insight, the backstory on this man. He lived naked among the tombs. He lived tomb to tomb, literally. Tombs were carved into cave-like areas. Uh, they didn't, you, you couldn't dig tombs like we do here in the West. It was all rock. So if you had an opening in a mountain or a cliff or a hilly area, you excavated that a little more, and that's where you buried your dead, all the way back to the cave of Machpelah that Abram buys to bury Sarah. So these cave imagery in the Middle East is very common where they would bury their loved ones. So he's living in a, in a demonic realm, in an unclean realm. He has supernatural strength. He's able to break chains. He's able to break shackles, whether they were on his wrist or on his feet. And he's superhuman. And then you read where it says he would uh, cut himself with stones or gashing himself. The word literally is laceration. So you've got a man who's extremely powerful. He's violent. We'd say he's superhuman. And some would see some connection with Samson. The ability that Samson had, the strength that he could do certain things. But no man is able to control him in this sense. He is supernaturally empowered in this miserable estate he meets Jesus, verse uh, 6. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him. And shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you, by God, do not torment me. For he, that is Jesus, had been saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. But he was asking him, What is your name? And he, the demon, said, My name is Legion. For we are many. And he began to implore him earnestly not to send him out of the country. So we've got this introduction, a little sidebar about the backstory, what this guy's like, and then the encounter with Jesus picks up in verse 6. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he runs and bows down. Why does he run and bow down? Uh, he's not worshiping Jesus as the Christ. Um, there's no definitive answer on some of the things I'm going to share with you today. My observation is uh, this demon-possessed, violent man runs up to Messiah because of the exchange we're going to read about. Uh, I don't think he willfully bowed down. I think the very presence of the person of Jesus Christ made him bow down. He was not coming to worship him. He's going to have somewhat of a verbal altercation with Christ. Shouting is the same ver verb in verse 5 and verse 7. It's a screaming, it's a yelling contest on this man's part toward Jesus. Remember, too, if you look at the narrative carefully, the demon-possessed man is not speaking. The demon is speaking. Jesus isn't rationalizing with this man, how did you become demon-possessed? What did you do that got you in trouble? There's no dialogue Jesus is talking to the demon, or demons plural, in this individual, not the man himself. Now the response from this demon to Jesus is quite interesting. What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Now each of these words is a whole string of sermons, but the address from this individual, this demon, to Jesus is remarkable. First of all, he's the father of lies. He's the deceiver. We'll talk more about that. Secondly, he calls him by his name, uh, son of the most high God. 
The Most High God goes back to Genesis 14 in, in the earliest part where to be the Most High God for the Jew was our God is higher than all other false gods. So in the Egyptian view of things, our God destroyed, Yahweh destroyed all the idols of the Egyptian gods. Our God is the Most High God. So this demon is referring to Jesus as son of the Most High God. He's acknowledging he's Christ. He's acknowledging he's the God-man. He gets that he's the son of God. He knows he's fully God, fully man, by the nature of bowing down, saying, what's our business? Why are you here? So it's an extraordinary confrontation from this demon or demons named Legion to Jesus Christ. Uh, keep in mind that the father of lies always lies. And so this arg argument of what business do we have isn't like, okay, why are you here? The presence of Christ is going to set this demon on edge right away. And so he's going to go on the offensive to try to confront Jesus. David Brown writes, Behold the tormentor, anticipating, dreading, and entreating exemption from torment. Listen again. Behold the tormentor, the one tormenting the, the man, anticipating, dreading, and entreating exemption to Jesus from torment. So he's living as a demonic torment to this poor man, and he doesn't want to be tormented himself. Well, Jesus commands the confrontation in verse 8. We look at it again. Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, what is your name? Now, there are all kinds of speculations by commentators and back in Jewish history. Uh, some believe that when you were going to cast out a demon, you had to know the demon's name. Now, I hardly think Jesus needed to know his name to cast out the demon. But this is where many liberal and non-believing commentators will take this. The other one is the question about the name Legion. Because a Roman guard legion was 6,000 individuals by some record. And then we've got the math problem between 6,000 and the legion and 2,000 pigs. And scholars worry about such things. Bless their poor hearts. But... Um, <laughs> This is all part of the backstory. What's happening at the high theological level is you've got a man possessed by an army, as one commentator called it, of demons. And keep in mind, the disciples are somewhere within eyesight and earshot. They're hearing this. They're seeing this confrontation going on. Uh, Jesus doesn't employ a method by calling him legion certain times and praying certain things to exercise the demon. None of that record is here which is why most of what you watch or read about exorcism is extra-biblical, meaning the Bible doesn't teach those things. Again, Richard France writes, Jesus is not confronted by one demon, but by an army of them. You sang a medley of songs this morning that refer to shackles and chains and being set free. And here you've got a man who cannot be chained or shackled because of the demonic power so strong in him, he can break those fetters without any trouble. Imploring Jesus, imploring him to send them out of the country raises a question. And for you who have the New American Standard Bible, five times the word implore or imploring occurs. We're going to focus on the last four. This is the first of those four. So here the demon is imploring, don't send us out of the country. And again, commentators go wild with what this may or may not mean. I'll give you my write it in pencil, uh, Michael Easley, semi-heresy viewpoint, okay? I can't prove this theologically or scripturally. It's just my gut in studying this text and scripture in general terms. What the demons are saying to him is, don't send us, it's not like, we kind of like living by the lake. 
don't send us into the desert, Jesus. I mean, this isn't the discussion. This is where some people go. The, the Decapolis was more susceptible to demons, all this kind of nonsense. It's pure speculation. When he says, what business do we have? I think he's putting Jesus on record saying, look, this isn't the end of time. This isn't when you come down and you take over and you put us in our realm of torment forever. It's not time, so don't send us out of the country. And I think it's a euphemistic way of saying it's not time. What business? We don't have business now. This isn't the right time. That's going to be in the future. And so the imploring on the part of the demon sounds like he's working his odds with Jesus, working angles with Jesus when he's just being what he is. He's a demon. He's a liar. He's a deceiver. He's evil. And so he implores Jesus not to send him out of the country. The herd of swine now entered the storyline, verse 11. Now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain. The demons implored him. This is a sidebar here. If you have a New American Standard, the word demons, uh, the demons are written in italics. Whenever you see something in italics in the New American Standard, it's not in the original Old or New Testament language. It's written to smooth the reading for the English ear and eye. So that word isn't there. It's implied in the New Testament language. It's just not there. Sometimes I read it and I drop these things out. Other times it's helpful to keep them in. That's all for free. The demons implored him saying, send us into the swine so that we may enter them. Jesus gave them permission and coming out the unclean spirits entered the swine and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea about 2,000 and they were drowned in the sea. Now again we're on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee shaped a little bit like a harp so we're on this northeastern side about a six or eight mile stretch of the Sea of Galilee where the Gadarenes, the Gerasenes, the Gadara would have been and so they're coming down this cliff these 2,000 uh, plus pigs. There are some good observations about this number one jews of course pigs are unclean animals they were un, uh, they were not allowed to eat them or farm them raise them anything to do with them and some speculate that the capitalist means the cities of the ten the tens of cities we talk about the greater nashville or we say middle tennessee that's sort of what is going on with the word decapolis it means these it's not literally ten cities but there were ten major regions and then the population base on that north and eastern side of the sea of galilee if they were jews they were hellenistic jews meaning they spoke greek we might call them nominal or marginalized Jews. They, weren't, they didn't follow the law precisely. Obviously, if they're Hellenistic Jews raising sheep, uh, raising pigs, they are not following the law. But there'd be good money in that. And after all, a nice piece of bacon is a good thing, right? So maybe we understand that. But the herd of swine are, are incidental to the story, and they implore Christ to send them into the swine, and so he again gives permission and these pigs go over the cliff into the sea. A number of images going on here. The sea and the watery area, the abyss, are all noted as the demonic area. So there may be a lot of wordplay as well as theological wordplay going on here. They're herding pigs. This is a bunch of demons called legion. I'm going to put them into the pigs and put them into the abyss where they belong. As That's their realm, is the abyss, the, the dark world, the caves, that whole nomenclature, the way the ancients looked at things and the way Scripture teaches them. Well, verses 14 to 20, we get the message, leave and then go home. Their herdsmen ran away and reported in the city 
and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus, observed the man who had been demon-possessed, sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind. The very man who had the legion, and they became frightened. Those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine. And they began to implore him, there's the word implore, to leave the region. And he was getting into the boat, and the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. And he did not let him. But he said to him, go home to your people and report to them the great things the Lord has done for you. And he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis the great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. The herdsmen run to report this unbelievable story back to the villages and towns around them. And then, of course, people come out in mass to see this thing that has happened. I love the description, sitting down clothed and in his right mind. It just, it just it makes me joyful. Uh, this guy who's dirty, filthy, naked, living among the demonic, got a legion of, of demons in him, completely in, unable to do anything but what the power of those demons enabled him to do. And in my sanctified imagination, he's had a shower, shave, got a clean set of clothes, eating bowl soup. And he's just happy to be there, you know. It, it's gone. It's been resolved. And so we have this complete contrast. The crowd's reaction is they're frightened. They were scared. Why are they frightened? Why would these uh, er, people from the Decapolis area, probably largely Gentiles, be afraid? And then why do they implore him to leave? And again, speculation abounds. Well, they lost a lot of money with this, you know, the, the herd of swine, so forth and so on. And that's all fine. We can observe those things. Um, I think the big piece of theology here is, is that the God-man has come on the planet and he has authority with a word to do what men and chains and shackles could not do. That's the part of the story we don't want to miss. We're all attracted with all the rabbit trails that this passage opens up. We'll talk about a few of those in a moment. But at the end of the day, this passage is about Jesus Christ having power and authority over that which man has no control. And his disciples are in the background watching and hearing all this. And they're the ones that are going to take it forward. And they're going to remember these things after he's gone and sends his spirit to remind them of these things. The account also tells me something about human nature and miracles. You could have, arguably, one of the most powerful demonstrative miracles so far in the Gospel of Mark, and people don't believe. They want him to go which should tell us a lot about miracles, signs, and wonders. Jesus did not come to be a 24-7 care clinic for 33 years. Had he done that, no more people would have come to faith than had he carried out the reason he came here in the first place, to live, to die, to be buried, to be resurrected, and to offer salvation to any and all who put their trust in Christ and Christ alone. That's why he came. He did not come simply to heal people. Otherwise, we wouldn't have hospitals. He would just have set up a whole discipleship structure on how to heal people. Remember again, every miracle, a physical symptom that illustrates something spiritually. If we're, bl if we're blind or deaf physically and Jesus heals us, we're being healed from our spiritual blindness, our spiritual deafness. If we're lame, we're physically lame, illustrating we're spiritually lame. 
So all the miracles do is take a physical example to illustrate something spiritually, the condition man is in. We come by faith, not by sight. Well, again, I think we're to see a little humor here because the once demon-possessed man, clothed in his right mind, implores Jesus to come with him. And I, I got to fill in the blanks and say, you know what, compared to these guys, can I go with you? Compared to these people that I've been living with over here, can I, I like you. I like what you've done for me. Can I follow you? Christ commissions the unnamed man in verse 19, go home to your people. And that phrase, your people, to me differentiates the Jew. Go home to your people. Those of your cultural background, those of your contextual setting, those of the capitalists, let's just say Hellenistic Jews for conversation's sake. You go back to them. And you tell them what the Lord has done for you, that he had mercy on you. Now, a side note, this is a Gentile area. And Jesus tells this guy to go tell them. You remember the story so far? What's Jesus tell people that see something spectacular or receive a miracle? What does he tell them? Don't tell anybody. First time in Mark's record, he says, go tell somebody. And again, I don't think it takes a any super study to figure this out this this is a gentile area where he's not going to spend any more time per se the record doesn't reveal it and he's going to go over there heal the man from gadarenes garrisons the gadara demoniac going to come back to their side of the sea and he's left there to go and tell people what happened to him and people are amazed the passage does not say he came to christ it doesn't say he believed in jesus it says go tell him he had mercy on you now, we, I don't think we're reading into it to believe at some point he does embrace who this Jesus is, but it doesn't say in the text precisely that. He says, go and tell them that God had what he'd done for you, that he had mercy on you. What were, what were the people around him incapable of doing? Helping him. Having mercy on him. They couldn't do anything. They tried to chain him. They tried to keep him from lacerating himself. He, he lived like a wild, violent man that no one could control. You go tell him God had mercy on you. Connect the dots. And he could have mercy on you as well. Because he's the one that has power and authority over our spiritual condition, not man, not our human resources. And everyone's amazed. A couple of uh, applications slash lessons slash so what. The first one it may seem like a, a redundant or unnecessary encouragement to you but do not open yourself to demonic influence um, we, we live in, in such an interesting time and culture where everything is fine i'm totally against legalism i'm totally against putting do's and don'ts out there for christians to live by because of the contrived notion that we're being good spiritual people or the contrived notion that somehow if i don't do that i'm, I'm a good christian and if i do that i'm a bad christian we've got to look at liberty and license and legalism and a spectrum and understand those things you're you're a smart enough group to understand that but don't toy with the demonic um now, I know I'm going to make some of you upset, but stay with me for just a minute. Cindy and I hate Halloween. We hate everything associated with Halloween. We hate it, we hate it, we hate it. And, um, I mean, we just really don't like it. And we have been known uh, to turn the lights off and hide. <laughs> now, this year, she bought a bag of candy, and we had the lights on, and we had a couple little critters come down that were kind of cute, you know, and Okay, and, and when Kenny was gone, we turned the lights off and hid after that basket was gone. We didn't want to, you know, that was it. 
Um, and, and I'm not, you know, all you grandparents who just drop a grand on your kids for Halloween, forgive me for messing up your, but it's, it's done. I'm like, I'm, you, I'm, you can't be guilty going forward. You can be able to go, you know, just hang with me. But um, costumes are fine. Candy, you know, if you want to sugar your kids out, God bless you. You know, good for you. Um, but what are we doing with some of the over-the-edge stuff with this holiday? I love that churches do fall festivals and Reformation Days and alternatives. I love it, I love it, love it, love it. Do more of it. I'm not anti this stuff. I'm just saying don't open yourself up to Ouija boards and exorcist shows and movies where you got to saw your limb off to live and things like that. Um, you know, you may want to go see all that stuff, you know, in your freedom. I'm not telling you not to. I'm saying do not open yourself up to demonic stuff that may well keep you awake at night and make you worry and fear about things you don't need to worry and fear about. That's just common sense. Analogous to when Cindy and I got married 36 years ago and we made vows before God and to one another and before man, I don't hang around single women at night going, did I marry the right woman? I made a vow to one woman. That's just common sense, right? You don't ask your uh, single friends, did you marry the right husband or the right, the right wife? Why do you open yourself to something demonic that could potentially affect you? I'm not trying to rain on your parade. Just a little bit. Just a mist on your parade. <laughs> a little mist on your parade. I'm not saying don't have fun. You know me better than that. I am saying he's more powerful than you understand. He is the father of lies. When I was in seminary, we took a course on angelology, uh, angels elect and evil. And the professor, the first day of class, put a transparency on the overhead that dates how old i am and it was a i believe it was a gustav door image of satan brooding it might have been dante's inferno i don't remember precisely but it was this winged demonic satan guy looking over you know this pond or lake whatever it was and he just left the slide up there and he said gentlemen whenever you talk about satan he is more powerful and more intelligent and can use it he didn't tell, it, tell us to frighten us. But this, what business do we have, to me, is a pretty good indication of how clever this is. The temptation accounts that we've looked at in the Gospels prior, how smart he is. He's more brilliant than you. He's more powerful than you and me. He's more crafty. He's the father of lies. He's the deceiver of all. And when we talk about him in tones of, you know, the Western view of a cult is almost cliche. You spend time abroad, you spend time where some of our global partners are, it's a whole different world of animism and spiritism and demonic influence and affect. And I don't come back and tell stories about demon possession and exorcism because there's, there's no point in it. I think whenever you talk about him, you give him attention and credence, which is why I think this passage is so powerful. There's no interaction with the disciples. This is Jesus dealing with them with a word. And we're meant to see that. We're meant to see the disciples on the sidelines sort of just watching and taking it all in with no record of their response. The antidote to the demonic is not to study demonology. The antidote is to stay very close to Jesus Christ. He's the only one who can defeat him. We're not told to pray. We're not told to fight Satan. We're not this whole fiction nonsense about praying and watching the angels win and lose. Forgive me. I just think that's heresy. It's not taught in Scripture. Hello, McFly, let's start here. What's taught here? Jude 1, 9, even Michael, the archangel. Quick sidebar story. Lucifer falls, right? 
the, the morning star, the son of the most, the, the, the most celebrated of all the hierarchy of angels. He takes legions with him. So now we have a subset. And in, in Jude 1 9 says, even Michael will not pronounce, I love this phrase, a railing judgment against the devil. What's Jude saying there? He's saying, look, these guys were, in a sense, angelic beings. They were, let's just say, equal for this discussion. They could have fought each other, would be the implication. And Jude says, no, it's not Michael's job. What business do we have? It's Christ's work. So the angels, it's a, whole, it's a fascinating field. Don't hear me wrong. Stay close to Jesus and stop worrying about demons is all I'm saying. You, you walk close to Christ, a lot of your life aligns. It's really that simple. We make it so hard. God's word, God's spirit, God's people. It's not that hard. And you're bright folks. You know this already. It's tantalizing as it is to study all this. So lastly, before I go on to my second lesson, I don't think a Christian can be demon-possessed. Now, some of you may differ. That's fine. When you trust Christ and Christ alone, and the Holy Spirit indwells you, even though we're still sinful people, I do not think the Holy Spirit will allow a demon to reside in a person whom he resides in. It's his house. It's his temple, not the demons. Now, can demons harass you and influence you? We could have a whole seminar on that. I would say focus more on walking close to Christ and not worrying about demon harassment. Don't open yourself up to nonsense because most people who in the Bible and who we see around the world who've gotten into this uh, have a history of opening themselves up to all kinds of bizarre and sick things and that's what pulls them into this opportunistic situation. But with a word, Christ remedies it. Secondly, don't miss the irony in this story and I think the movement that Mark gives us is delightful. The demons four times implore Jesus not to send them out of the country. Then the demons implore Jesus to send us into the swine. Don't send us out of the country, but send us into the swine. Then the townspeople come out and they implore Jesus to leave. And then the once demon-possessed man implores him, can I go with you? I don't think we're going to miss that movement. It's pretty easy to see. The irony back and forth is the God-man comes on the scene and the demons know who he is. The God-man comes on the scene, and people miss it. Even the demons bleed and shudder. The people are afraid to go away. Go away. We implore you to go away. They miss their opportunity. So he leaves the one disciple there. Arguably, maybe that one Gentile, once formerly possessed man, is the disciple to the Gentiles that we'll know about in glory. He went back and told what great things God had done for him and how he'd been merciful to him. But I think at the highest level of the story, the movement of, God, of Mark's gospel, he's saying, look, there's only one that has this kind of authority. And people are going to respond in different ways. The demons know all about him. People miss it. God can perform the most fascinating work in your life, and then next week, the next month, you forgot about it. He did not come just to administer miracles and perform signs and wonders for us. Seeing comes nice things. Believing is faith in Christ. Your confidence in Christ is in his word. The history and the theology and the story is fabulous. But did he speak? 
do we have that record? Do we hear what God says now as we read it? That's the only basis I know. Experiential theology will always fail you. The demons got him. The once possessed man got him. The people missed him. Why are we surprised when the world hates us? Why are we surprised when they think we're intolerant and hateful and call us all kinds of names? Because they're deceived. The nations are deceived. And it's our job to love Christ, to stay close to him, and to be a light in a dark place. To be salt to people that aren't even sure they're thirsty. To share the good news of this person and work of Jesus Christ so we don't live in fear of things like demons and demonology. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that it's always true, no matter what our experience tells us. Help us to walk closely to you, to live according to your word and not our experiences. Thank you when our experiences do encourage us and bless us and we enjoy good things, but may we not ground our theology or our Christianity on just our experience, but on what your word tells us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.